Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Hundreds of demonstrators took to the streets of Missoula, Montana last week in support of the state's first openly transgender lawmaker, Democratic State Representative Zoe Zephyr. They did so after Zephyr was banned from the floor of the state house because, in urging her Republican colleagues to oppose a bill banning gender-affirming health care for transgender minors, she used these words. If you vote yes on this bill... And yes, on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. The Republicans who control two-thirds of the state house said that language broke decorum, and they voted to banish Zephyr from the House floor for the rest of the 2023 legislative session, although allowing her to cast votes. Clerk, record the vote. Mr. Chair, 63 representatives voted aye, 34 voted no. Ruling the Speaker has been upheld. Zephyr sued, alleging a violation of her First Amendment rights, as well as the rights of her 11,000 constituents to representation. Given the fact that the Republicans used uh, sort of an unequal and undemocratic application of decorum to silence me and the constituents who elected me in the legislature, I'm not surprised that they doubled down on that effort when my constituents showed up and demanded uh, that their representative's voice be heard. Joining me is Robert Peck, the president of the Center for Constitutional Litigation. Robert, give us the background of why she was ousted. The Montana House of Representatives claimed that she had violated their rules of decorum by protesting against a bill under consideration that would have banned gender-affirming care. And she pointed out that this would lead to an increase in suicides. She accused them of basically, if they pass this, they would have blood on their hands. And that language apparently so upset that they thought that this was terrible. And in addition, the following day, because they stopped calling on her so that she couldn't speak, they had the galleries crowded with Zoe Zephyr's supporters. And they were chanting, let her speak, let her speak. And she held a microphone that wasn't actually turned on over her head as if she was going to enhance the sound of those protests. And they thought that amounted to insurrection. It was on partisan lines because Republicans control two-thirds of the House and Senate in Montana. What was the censure? So she is banished from being in the House chambers during any legislative debate or during any action that the House takes. And she is also silenced so that she is not allowed to speak or participate in that debate. But thinking that this would keep them on the right side of the constitutional line, they allow her to vote remotely. And so she has set up herself with a laptop just outside of the chambers where she follows it on her laptop and she votes when it's appropriate to vote. So she's suing. 
So she sued, and part of the suit includes claims of First Amendment retaliation. It may be indicative of our times that it's the same claim at the center of Disney's new lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis for retaliating against it for criticizing the Don't Say Gay legislation. So tell us about that cause of action. So a, a case of First Amendment retaliation is essentially when you are punished for exercising your free speech rights. So in this instance, because she basically voiced her opposition to the then-pending legislation that subsequently passed and was signed by the governor, they banished her. And the excuse of decorum doesn't fly because, of course, she was participating in the legislative debate. They simply did not like the way she phrased it or what she said. She represents 11,000 constituents, and some residents of the Missoula area, which she represents, said in declarations filed as part of the lawsuit that they wanted Zephyr Heard in the legislature. How do their rights play into this? Well, when you vote for a representative, you're voting for someone who's going to do more than just vote. Take, for example, the budget issue. Often what happens during budget debates is not only pointing out how this is going to help or adversely affect parts of the state, but there's often horse trading that goes on. You can't basically say, look, I'll vote for your provision if you vote for my provision if you're not on the floor. Also, the Montana legislature is a part-time legislature that only convenes every two years. So Zephyr would have to be reelected in 2024 before she could return to the House floor. But even the Democratic minority leader, Kim Abbott, appeared to concede that the removal of Zephyr was within the House's authority. She said on the House floor, you absolutely can do this by rule, by the Constitution, but just because you can do it does not make it the right choice. The statement that her Democratic leader made was wrong as a matter of constitutional law. And we have seen this repeatedly throughout time. So in the 1960s, Julian Bond was newly elected to the Georgia legislature. But just before he was sworn in, he criticized the Vietnam War and basically said that the United States didn't belong in it. And so the Georgia legislature considered him unpatriotic for that statement and refused to let him take his office. He sued. It went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which in 1966 said he had to be restored to his seat. That, indeed, one of the greatest purposes of the First Amendment is to make sure that those who want to criticize and discuss government, even in harsh terms, get the opportunity to do so. Do you think that this Supreme Court would come to a similar ruling? I think even the Supreme Court, which, you know, is not exactly friendly to transgender rights, would find this to be a violation of the Constitution. Now, she sued in state court, but this court has been very, very solicitous of First Amendment rights. And here we have, in addition to those free speech rights that she exercised, a provision in the Montana Constitution that protects legislators during legislative debate, that they can't be sanctioned for what they say in the course of legislative debate. And if an overwhelming majority of the legislature, even everyone but one person, wants to silence somebody, they don't have the right under the Montana Constitution or the federal Constitution to do so. And when they violate the Constitution, it is the courts that you have to turn to to correct that. And the legislature is subject to the Constitution. It's not above it. 
Well, the court that Zephyr turned to rejected her bid to return to the state house. The judge said it was outside his authority to overrule lawmakers, citing separation of powers. He said the Montana Constitution explicitly grants each house the authority to expel or punish a member for good cause and that the Constitution explicitly reserves this power for the legislature. What's your take on that decision? This was an abdication of judicial authority. The fact is that we expect our courts to be a check on legislative abuses that violate the Constitution. And here we have a twofold violation with respect to the representative Zoe Zephyr and a separate violation with respect to their constituents. And while the authority of the legislature is to expel a member for good cause, they didn't expel her. They instead imposed a sanction on her in which she could continue to vote so she was not expelled, but she could not be seen or heard. And that was an interference with her First Amendment rights. Certainly, internal rules of the legislature don't override that. It was also a violation of the legislative debate provision, which the Montana Supreme Court has enforced in the past. And so, therefore, this was really strange that he thought he had no authority there. And then he also failed to address the fact that this also left the constituents without a voice on the House floor in violation of equal protection. This, again, was an attempt, really, to punt on a controversial issue so that he wouldn't have to deal with the merits of anything. Zephyr's attorney said they're considering an appeal, but pointed to the fact that the legislative session is ending, so there'd be no consequence. Well, the legislative session actually ended shortly after this judge's decision. They moved up the time and they adjourned. And I think they did that, voting on the budget and avoiding anything else, hoping that this moots the case so that it could not be appealed. And certainly there is a substantial argument that it is mooted because there is no existing injury from this because the sanction against her also ended. But I would argue that this is one of those cases that is likely to uh, repeat itself and evade review because of the short period of the legislative session and the slowness with which courts operate. And so I would venture that an appeal still lies and that there ought to be a declaratory judgment about whether they could act this way again in the future. Thanks so much, Robert. That's Robert Peck of the Center for Constitutional Litigation. Coming up, the Supreme Court will consider reversing a 40-year-old precedent. You're listening to Bloomberg. A new Gallup poll shows that nearly 60 percent of respondents disapprove of the job the Supreme Court is doing. This amid reports suggesting that justices might have had conflicts of interest. There are reports of lavish vacations. Justice Clarence Thomas took for two decades, paid for by billionaire GOP donor Harlan Crow, and also a real estate deal with Crow. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on what should be done to enact ethics guidelines for Supreme Court justices. Committee members heard from a panel of legal experts including Rakeem Brooks, the president of the Alliance for Justice, and Jeremy Fogel, the executive director for the Berkeley Judicial Institute. When you become a public servant, we all agree that you will forsake riches while in office. You may indeed be friends with millionaires and billionaires, but you don't get to share their world to build a mansion in yours. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Too many Americans already think that the justices decide cases based on their political preferences and alliances rather than the law. Lack of clarity about the justices' ethical obligations only feeds that perception. However, Republican senators criticized the hearing as an effort to destroy the reputation of Thomas, who is one of the staunchest conservative voices on the court. Joining me is an expert in judicial ethics, Arthur Hellman, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Through the years, the justices have been called upon to write their own code of conduct, but they've never done so. And recently, the chief presented this statement on ethics, principles, and practices that all nine justices signed. It, it's nothing new. So is that an indication to you that they think everything's fine? They don't think they have to have an ethics code? It certainly suggests that they're not prepared to adopt an ethics code at this time, or at least they were not when they submitted that statement in response to the, the question from the Senate. It did strike me that at the hearing, some of the Republican senators, although generally defending the court, seemed to give indications that they might find that defense a little bit easier if the court did adopt a code of conduct. And one of the things that has always struck me is that the court has explained, sort of, why it doesn't think it needs a code of conduct. But I don't think it has ever really explained why that would be a bad idea. Now, I think the reason may be one that they're reluctant to express in public, namely that if they do adopt a a code of conduct, it will make it easier for partisan or ideologically motivated people to attack particular justices. But there's so much attack going on now that I'm not sure that reasoning, if it is the reasoning behind their reluctance, should carry much weight. I do think at this point that they would be well advised to adopt a code of conduct And we should be clear what that means. A code of conduct, as the Chief Justice says, is a source of guidance. It does not carry with it an enforcement mechanism necessarily. That's a separate question. That's a more difficult question. But once the justices have told us that they do have a written-down set of 
principles and practices, it seems to me it's a very short step to actually adopt a code of conduct. It's hard to see what they gain by refusing to do so. And I do think they could gain some support. They they would have done something to respond to this outcry, whether or not the outcry is motivated by genuine concern over ethics. There are some good reasons for having a code of conduct. And why couldn't they just adopt the code of conduct that other federal judges are subject to? I've seen statements to the effect that, well, the code of conduct for United States judges, which is applicable to all other federal judges, isn't necessarily applicable to Supreme Court justices. But I'm not sure that anybody has pointed out any specific provisions that would be inapplicable. And in fact, if you look at the code, it seems to me that most of the provisions very clearly would be equally suitable. For example, a judge may not make a contribution to a political candidate. A judge should not be a member of a club that practices invidious discrimination. A judge should not use his or her judicial position to advance the private interests of the judge or the judge's friends or associates. Those are some of the provisions of the code. And I can't imagine that the justices would say, well, those don't apply to us. So I really think it would be a very easy task to go through that code if there are some provisions that for some reason shouldn't apply to Supreme Court justices. They can modify or eliminate those. But I I think it would be a, a very easy job to take the existing code of conduct for United States judges and turn it into one that the justices could put on their website and say, we look to this for guidance. So Senator Dick Durbin said, lax ethical standards have created a lack of public confidence in the court. The court is at an all-time low as far as public opinion goes, and does this add to it? Well, it may, although I think for most people, the ethical issues are far less important than the court's decisions. And I think it was the court's decisions, particularly in the the most recent term, the hugely controversial overruling of Roe v. Wade that have been most responsible for changes in a negative direction of public uh, approval of the court. The ethical issues, sure, they, they add fire to the flames. It's It's not the major driver. I do think that the court would find it has more friends if it did adopt a code of conduct that would guide it in the same way that it guides other federal judges. To me, what it makes it seem like, this this refusal over year after year after year to adopt a code of ethics, that the Supreme Court justices are above the law. They don't need to follow the same rules and regulations or be bound by the same rules and regulations as other federal judges? Well, I I don't think it suggests that they think they're above the law. I mean, they keep reiterating that they do look to the code of conduct for guidance. That is what makes it so baffling to me that they don't say in a formal way, we look to the code for guidance. In other words, if you look at the code, it says it's a source of guidance. And 
I just don't see why the Supreme Court is unwilling to say we, too, look to the code as a source of guidance. But I don't think that not making it formal suggests that they think they're above the law. They think that informal consultation is so close to adopting the code that they don't need to take that further step. And further, they may think that taking that step will make them more vulnerable to attacks. As I say, I don't think that reasoning, if it was ever persuasive, is persuasive today, but I don't think that's equivalent of their saying we're above the law. They look at the law in the sense that they look at the rules. They just have a somewhat different relationship to it. It's not the formal relationship that other federal judges have. Despite the fact that they have this guidance that they supposedly follow, look what happened in Clarence Thomas's case. And it looks like there won't even be an investigation. The only way to hold them to account seems to be impeachment. And that's almost impossible in the political landscape today. Well, it is true that in the lower federal courts, there is a mechanism for investigating allegations of misconduct by judges that is entirely separate from the Code of Conduct. And both documents, both the Code of Conduct and the rules governing the misconduct process make clear that the two systems are not congruent, that a violation of the code is not necessarily misconduct, but misconduct proceedings can be used where there's an allegation of a violation of the code, and there is no equivalent process for the Supreme Court. But I think a couple of the witnesses at the hearing pointed out very powerfully how difficult it would be and how problematic it would be to try to come up with a counterpart set of procedures for the Supreme Court. It would be misused, it would be weaponized, and I don't think it would be an improvement over the the current situation, although I agree with you that it is not ideal that there is no enforcement mechanism for the Supreme Court, but I think in the end, my view is that the cure would be worse than the disease. I I just wonder if the justices just think, you know, our attention spans are so short and this will blow over just like, you know, the leaked draft sort of blew over until Justice Alito started talking about it again. I don't want to speculate as to their motives, though I guess I have speculated a little bit as to their thinking. I think that they do believe that they and their colleagues do their best to comply And some of the reasons that witnesses suggested coming up with an enforcement mechanism would be so threatening to the way the court works and in the end would would result in even more problems with respect to perceptions among people, because you would then have a steady flow of complaints that would assure that Supreme Court ethics we're always in the news one way or the other, and that can't possibly be helpful to the court or to the system of justice. Thanks so much for being on the show, Arthur. That's Professor Arthur Hellman of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law.
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.